not doing. Ezekiel chapter 34. The word of the Lord came to me. Son of man, prophesy against the shepherds of Israel. Prophesy and say to them, even to the shepherds. Thus says the Lord God. Ah, shepherds of Israel, who have been feeding yourselves. Should not the shepherds feed the sheep? You eat the fat. You clothe yourselves with the wool. You slaughter the fat ones, but you do not feed the sheep. The weak you have not strengthened. The sick you have not healed. The injured you have not bound up. The strayed you have not brought back. The lost you have not sought. And with force and harshness you have ruled them, so that they were scattered because there was no shepherd, and they became food for all the wild beasts. My sheep were scattered, they wandered over all the mountains, and on every high hill my sheep were scattered over all the face of the earth, with none to search or seek for them. Verse 11, For thus says the Lord God, Behold, I... I myself will search for my sheep and will seek them out. And then my text for this morning is Luke chapter 15. I'm going to read the entire chapter. Perhaps a well-known chapter, but worthy of uh, consideration. Uh, Luke chapter 15, beginning at verse 1 and reading the entire chapter. Now the tax collectors and sinners were all drawing near to him, and the Pharisees and scribes grumbled, saying, This man receives sinners and eats with them. So he told them this parable, What man of you, having a hundred sheep, if he has lost one of them, does not leave the ninety-nine in the open country and go after the one that is lost until he finds it? And when he has found it, he lays it on his shoulders rejoicing. And when he comes home, he calls together his friends and his neighbors, saying to them, Rejoice with me, for I have found my sheep that was lost. Just so I tell you, there will be more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents than over ninety-nine righteous persons who need no repentance. Or what woman, having ten silver coins, if she loses one coin, does not light a lamp and sweep the house, And seek diligently until she finds it. And when she has found it, she calls together her friends and neighbors, saying, Rejoice with me, for I have found the coin that I had lost. Just so I tell you, there is joy before the angels of God over one sinner who repents. And he said, There was a man who had two sons. And the younger of them said to his father, Father, give me the share of property that is coming to me. And he divided his property between them. Not many days later, the younger son gathered all he had, took a journey into a far country, and there he squandered his property in reckless living. And when he had spent everything, a severe famine arose in that country, and began to, he began to be in need. So he went and hired himself out to one of the citizens of that country, who sent him into his fields to feed pigs. And he was longing to be fed with the pods that the pigs ate. And no one gave him anything. But when he came to himself, he said, How many of my father's hired servants have more than enough bread? But I perish here with hunger. I will arise and go to my father 
And I will say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Treat me as one of your hired servants. And he arose and came to his father. But while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and felt compassion and ran and embraced him and kissed him. And the son said to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father said to his servants, Bring quickly the best robe and put it on him, and put a ring on his hand and shoes on his feet, and bring the fatted calf and kill it, and let us eat and celebrate. For this my son was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found, and they began to celebrate. Now his older son was in the field. And as he came and drew near to the house, he heard music and dancing. And he called one of the servants and asked what these things meant. And he said to him, Your brother has come, and your father has killed the fattened calf because he has received him back safe and sound. But he was angry and refused to go in. His father came out and entreated him. But he answered his father, Look, these many years I have served you, and I have never disobeyed your command. Yet you never gave me a young goat that I might celebrate with my friends. But when this son of yours came, who has devoured your property with prostitutes, you killed the fattened calf for him. And he said to him, Son, you are always with me, and all that is mine is yours. It was fitting to celebrate and be glad. For this your brother was dead and is alive. He was lost and is found. Thus far the reading of God's word. May he add his blessing to it. Beloved of the Lord, Luke chapter 15 is a chapter very rich in theological themes, both uh, illustrating and uh, teaching directly various subjects. There is material here about the fatherhood of God, about uh, his love and compassion for lost sinners. There is material here uh, illustrative of the depravity of, uh, of man and the depth of his sin, Uh, the wonder and joy of uh, free forgiveness. Uh, There is material here about uh, repentance, even some eschatological uh, references to the future marriage supper of the Lamb, which the feast at the end of Luke 15 foreshadows. Uh, There are many uh, things here that someone could focus on and uh, develop into a whole series of sermons, Uh, but that's not my uh, purpose this morning. Uh, Sadly, though it is rich in uh, material, uh, a lot of preachers uh, focus only on one thing, that bad boy son, uh, the one who ran away and made a mess of his life and then came to his senses. And uh, most of the sermons that I've ever heard, perhaps you also, this is the case, although this is only anecdotal evidence, most of the sermons that that I'm familiar with from Luke 15 are about uh, preachers calling Uh, reprobates to repentance. You know, come back, uh, amend your ways. God is ready to open his arms and receive you back. His uh, forgiveness is free and and so forth, and we'll all rejoice uh, when you repent. It's it's meant to call sinners to repentance. Now, there's nothing wrong with those sermons, but there's so much more here that that needs to be expounded. And I want to spend some time uh, this morning with you looking at some of the things that are often ignored. Now, I'm not trying to put myself above other preachers as if I'm better than them. Uh, You know, I've been a a runner all my life, and uh, both in running and in preaching, I consider myself a a middle-of-the-pack plotter, uh, not uh, a leader of the pack. Uh, I'm just a simple country parson, but uh, 
I, I have good teachers, and I've learned a lot about Luke 15 from one of my former professors, the late Dr. Edmund Clowney, who has a number of podcasts about uh, Luke 15 that uh, you can still listen to. And uh, I've also learned from uh, Reverend Tim Keller, uh, pastor in uh, New York City, who now uh, retired and uh, being treated for cancer, I believe. But uh, he has a book on Luke 15 called The Prodigal God, strange title that offends some people because they think it's saying something bad about God. But as he points out in that book, the word prodigal simply means extravagant. We normally associate it with extravagant waste, but he says uh, God is extravagant in his mercy and love and therefore can be called a uh, prodigal God. And what I want to focus on uh, uh, today is uh, the uh, purpose of the parable, uh, the unity of the parable, the third brother, and the cost of return. The purpose of the parable, the unity of the parable, the third brother, and the cost of return. Now, the purpose of the parable, what, what is its purpose? Well, that's, it's not hard to figure out. It's uh, explained in the opening uh, two verses, uh, three verses. Uh, Jesus is dealing with tax collectors and sinners. Tax collectors are uh, really bad boys because they have uh, collaborated with the enemy. It's like uh, Dutch citizens collaborating with the Nazi occupation. You know, they, they were uh, shunned by the, the loyal uh, citizens of the, the Dutch nation. Well, here you have Roman occupation and you have Jews who go to work for the Roman oppressors in order to enrich themselves, in order to make money. Uh, against their fellow Jews, and so they're really bad. But Jesus was also associating with prostitutes and drunkards and uh, thieves and so forth. Uh, he's uh, associating with uh, those people who are, in the words of our church order, guilty of gross public sins. And this offends the scribes and the Pharisees. They, they're grumbling. This man receives sinners and eats with them. And then verse 3 says, so he told them this parable. So the parable is in response to the scribes and Pharisees who are self-righteous, proud, judgmental of others, looking down their noses at those who they consider to be their their inferiors, looking down upon the deplorables of uh, society. Uh, These are the, the proud leaders of the church. These are covenant members who are proud of who they are. Remember, Jesus uh, told the parable of the Pharisee who stood on the street corner praying, saying, I thank you, God, that I'm not like other people, like that tax collector over there. You know, I I tithe and I I go to to, uh, synagogue and I go to the temple three times a year and so forth. I'm, I'm righteous. I'm holy. Well, it's that kind of proud attitude, that self righteous attitude that Jesus is addressing with this parable. And confirmation of that is found in the fact that at the end of the parable, where you expect the punchline, the real power, you have a self-righteous, judgmental person, the older brother, being rebuked by the father. You know, you know a good storyteller, when he tells a story, he always saves the punchline for the end. Uh, sometimes uh, storytellers uh, 
who aren't good storytellers give away the punchline too soon. But Jesus is a good storyteller and the punchline comes at the end. And so at the beginning of Luke 15, you have these proud figures. At the end of Luke 15, you have this proud brother being rebuked. The purpose of the parable is to deal with that kind of self-righteous attitude among uh, uh, God's uh, covenant people. Now, it shouldn't surprise us that the purpose of the parable is not a favorite among uh, preachers because uh, the parable is aimed at the uh, so-called good sons of the kingdom who never disobey the Father. It's uh, aimed at people who are proud of the fact that they go to church twice on Sunday. It's aimed at those who are proud that they tithe regularly, that they've never been arrested, that they always lead respectable lives, and that they're so much better than the ordinary riffraff of our immoral, uh, immoral society. Uh, a guest preacher might get away with addressing such people, but uh, the regular pastor of a church might be a little leery to go too deep into that subject because they're his employer and he's dependent upon them for his livelihood and therefore he uh, doesn't want to step on too many toes. But this is the purpose of the parable, to address such self-righteous uh, arrogant, judgmental people who look down their noses and consider, at sinners and consider themselves so much better than others. That's the first thing that I want to address, the purpose of the parable. The second thing that I want to address is uh, the unity of the parable. And by that I simply mean this, that Luke 15 is one parable, despite the headings that you find in our Bibles. Now I'm looking at an ESV Bible in front of me. I've been told that that's what you have as well. And you might notice if you look at the text that above verse 1 of chapter 15, it says the parable of the lost sheep in italic letters, meaning it's not part of the inspired text. It's an editorial comment from the editor, like a study Bible, only instead of the notes at the bottom of the page, you have it inserted in the text. Then above verse 8, it's the parable of the lost coin. And then immediately above verse 11, the parable of the prodigal son. Well, that gives you the impression we have three parables here. Well, remember, these are part of uh, the editor's notes. They're not uh, part of the original text. They're not inspired of God. Uh, These kind of uh, comments by editors are very helpful many times, but sometimes they're they're a little less than helpful. Uh, This is one parable. Now, I can state that, but can I prove it? Well, uh, look at verse 3. It says, so he told them, these parables, plural? No, it doesn't say that. It says he told them this parable. And uh, the parable that deals with proud, arrogant, uh, self-righteous covenant members uh, ends at the end of the chapter. Uh, That's one evidence that you have one parable. There is also the fact that at the beginning of uh, verse 8, it doesn't say as is often found when Jesus tells several parables in a row. Uh, In other places, it's introduced with, and he told them another parable. Uh, But it doesn't say, and he told them another parable. It says, or, which is a connecting word. Same at the beginning of verse 11. The word and is a connecting word. These things are connected grammatically uh, by the very words that Jesus is using. He says, single parable, And these things connect. Their subject matter is interrelated. And it comes to a 
a climax at the end of the chapter, so we have one parable here. Now, you might be thinking, so what? (laughs) What difference does that make? Uh, Scripture means what it means, whether it's one parable or three parables. Uh, If we look at each uh, verse, uh, we can figure out what it means, right? Well, think of it this way. If you're reading a book, and that book has three chapters, do you isolate those chapters from each other and read just one, or maybe just read the last one? If you read the last chapter without reading the first two, you miss all the the material that the author wants you to have in mind when you read the last chapter. If you're reading a murder mystery, you know, how you might be tempted to read the first chapter to see uh, what uh, the crime was and then skip ahead to see what it was, uh, how, who, who did it, but most people don't do that. They enjoy the process of building the plot and gathering information and gathering clues and then coming to the climax in the last chapter. Each uh, chapter before the last chapter contributes something that helps you appreciate the end. And without that information, you can't really appreciate the end. Well, that's what we have here. We have one parable with three chapters. And there's information in the first two chapters that we need in order to properly understand and feel the full weight of the punch at the end. Uh, Now you might ask, well, what is that? Uh, What what do we gain in those first two stories that, that help us to understand the third chapter? Well, here I'm indebted to uh, Dr. Edmund Clowney, who said that what we need to do is ask how these three sections of the one parable are the same and how are they different. With regard to how they are the same, they're all about lost sinners. Now, I know the first one is about lost sheep, but how does that that first chapter end? It says, uh, so just so there is uh, more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents than over the 99 righteous sons who need no repentance. So the lost sheep represent lost sinners. And the lost sheep here in the, uh, that the shepherd goes hunting for is a, uh, represents a lost sinner. The same with the lost coins. Uh, verse 10 says, just so I tell you there is joy before the angels of God over one sinner who repents. So the lost coins represent lost sinners. The lost sheep represent lost sinners. The lost coin represents lost sinners. And this younger son is a lost sinner. So all three are about lost sinners. Now, how are they different? Well, uh, I I won't leave you in suspense here. They're different in the fact that in the third story, there's no search. There's no search. Uh, In the first story, chapter one of the parable, they make a big deal of this. What shepherd doesn't do this? Every shepherd knows that if he has a lost sheep, he's supposed to go look for it. And when he finds it, he's overjoyed. The search is, is the center of, of the story. It's searching for that lost sinner, finding him, and rejoicing when you find him. The lost coin. Does it say that the, the woman, having sent ten silver coins, loses one and says, well, next Monday I, I plan on sweeping the house. I hope uh, when I sweep the house or the next time I sweep the house, I can find it. No, it says she, she lights a lamp. Now, at this stage of uh, human history in the first uh, century that Jesus is uh, describing here, oil lamps uh, were a luxury item. They, they didn't use them every day. They were for special occasions. 
and especially a woman who has only 10 coins is not a wealthy woman, to light a lamp uh, is an extravagance. Most people uh, got up when the sun got up and went to bed when the sun went down. That's uh, working from sun to sun was their their practice, and uh, lamps, oil lamps, were an expensive extravagance. So this woman is... uh, is really concerned about this. And then it says, she searched diligently. Again, there's an emphasis on the importance of the search. But when you come to the third chapter, there's no search. Now, either there wasn't supposed to be one, or there was supposed to be one, and it's, it's obviously missing. Which is it? Well, I read to you from Ezekiel 34, to impress upon you that one of the things that shepherds are supposed to do, just like shepherds of sheep, real sheep, is if one is lost, you're supposed to go searching for them. That's the thing that comes up over and over again in those first six verses. There's a number of things that they're not doing, but the fact that they're not searching for the lost is repeated three times. And then in verse 11, you have God saying, Because the shepherds aren't searching for them, I'm going to search for them. Searching is the duty of the brother. When Cain murdered his brother Abel, God came to him and said, where's Abel? And Cain said, am I my brother's keeper? And what did God say? Did he say, oh, Forgive me, Cain. I'm sorry. I realize you have no obligation to your brother. No, of course you're your brother's keeper. That's, that's what a brother is for. You know, there's a proverb that says, a brother is born for adversity. That means when you get in trouble, your brother's supposed to help you out. I know some of you don't have brothers, but every one of you has a brother in the church. That's what the church is. We're, we're brothers and sisters in Christ. And And the church is here to to help you. That's why we have offerings for benevolence and why we have deacons and and why every member should be concerned about every other member and their needs because a brother is born for adversity. God gives you brothers so that when you get in trouble, the brother can come and help you. And Cain did the very opposite of what he was supposed to do. The one he was supposed to protect and help, he killed. He made it such a heinous crime. When Jacob wanted to know how his sons were doing, his older ten sons who had taken the sheep away, the flocks away, and so forth. He didn't say to Joseph, Joseph, you stay here with Benjamin and tend the flock, attend the, the home fires. I'm going to go in search of your brothers. Now Jacob said, go and see how your brothers are doing. It's a brother's duty to check up on his, on his own brothers. Same with Jesse. Jesse's three older sons were uh, with Saul, Uh, at the battlefront with the Philistines where Goliath was issuing his challenge every day. And and Jesse says to David, David, you stay here. I want to go check on your brothers. No, that's not what he said. He said, David, I'll stay here. You go check on your brothers and and, uh, take these uh, bread and cheese and stuff for his captain and and see how everything is going. Be a help to your brothers. In Deuteronomy chapter 15, it says, Uh, Verse 2, it says that you should help your fellow Israelite because, or he says you should help your neighbor because your neighbor is your brother. And it it goes on to say in verse 15, uh, chapter 15, verses 7 and 12, 
that every Hebrew man and every Hebrew woman is your brother. Interesting that it says every woman is your brother. Uh, They were uh, very gender inclusive in that respect uh, back then. But Moses is teaching, look, you have a responsibility to help your neighbor because your neighbor is your brother. In fact, every Hebrew man and every Hebrew woman is your brother. So you have an obligation to help every single Hebrew person that you know that is in need because they are your brother. It's a brother's duty to help the brother. In Leviticus 25, we have the, uh, the law of the kinsman redeemer, uh, the one who helps out if you get in trouble. And in every, uh, uh, the first uh, kinsman redeemer is always your brother if there's no... Uh, brother, then it's your, your father's brother, or uh, your nearest uh, male relative functions in place of the brother, but the default kinsman redeemer is always the brother. So uh, there should have been a search here, and the older brother is the one who should have done it. The older brother who should have loved his father and known that his father was concerned by, about the, the younger son, uh, the older brother knew that his, his younger brother was a, a foolish young man, a disobedient and uh, young man who was bound to get himself in trouble. I mean, what kind of son says to the father, I can't wait until you're dead. I want your stuff now. There's something wrong with that kind of son when, when he makes that kind of demand. And the older brother should have said, I know what kind of guy my younger brother is. I know my father loves him. I should go and see if he's okay. I should go and see if he needs help. The, the story cries out for the need of a faithful older brother, but instead you have a hard-hearted, unforgiving, proud, arrogant older brother like the scribes and the Pharisees who are grumbling about Jesus associating with tax collectors and sinners. If only there were a faithful older brother in this story, one who would act like a shepherd, one who would, who would know that it was his duty that if one is lost, he has to go search for it, one who would act like the widow who lost the coin and, and lit a lamp despite the extravagance and searched diligently until she found it. If only there were an older brother like that, That's what the story is all about, that there there is an unfaithful older brother. But that leads me to my third point, the third brother, the third brother. Now, some of you are thinking, there's no third brother in this chapter. There's only two, two brothers, two sons. It's a good thing Pontier is uh, uh, retired because uh, he's beginning to go a little senile. He thinks there's a third brother here. Well, I didn't say the third brother in the parable, did I? I said a third brother. The third brother is not in the parable, but he's in the chapter. He's our brother, our brother Jesus Christ. Remember Hebrews chapter 2 says that he was, Jesus Christ was made like his brothers in every way. In every way, of course, except for sin. And in that same chapter, it says of Jesus, he's not ashamed to call us his brothers. Jesus is our brother. You know, in the beginning, God had two sons. When I say in the beginning, I mean Genesis chapter 1 and 2. In the beginning, God had two sons. He had had an eternal son, 
the second person of the Trinity, who was with God and was God and uh, fully divine, the second person of the Trinity, God's eternal Son. That's God's first Son. But then God had a second Son. He created that Son. He, the, son was, the second Son was not divine, but he was in the likeness of the Father. He was created in the image and likeness of God. How do we know that Adam is also God's son? Well, he, the Bible calls him that. For example, in Luke chapter 3, you have the genealogy of Jesus that starts with uh, Jesus, son of Joseph, and works backward all the way to uh, Enoch, son of Seth, Seth, uh, son of Adam. And then what does it say at the end of Luke chapter 3? Adam, the son of God. Adam, the son of God. God had two sons. Now, what did God do for his second son? Well, he gave him a glorious inheritance, just like in the parable. God the Father gives his second son a glorious inheritance. Rule over the birds of the air. Rule over the fish of the sea. Rule over everything that moves on the ground. Subdue the earth. Fill the earth. I give it to you. What did Adam and Eve do with the glorious inheritance that God gave them? Of course, they ruined it. They sinned against God. They sinned against each other. They brought down the curse of God so that you and I now live in a world that groans under the curse. We read about it in the news every day. War, famine, hunger, crime. Mass crimes by uh, individuals shooting children in schools. We see all sorts of terrible things, uh, all kinds of mayhem and rape, uh, rape and, and murder and politicians uh, belittling each other and making war against each other in the halls of uh, government. All oh, the world is a mess. And not, not just a mess out there. Pastors of churches are dropping out of the ministry all the time because of the stress of dealing with sinners in their church. Husbands and wives who can't get along and who divorce one another and bring all kinds of psychological pain and, and problems upon their children and uh, people who uh, are uh, leading seemingly respectable lives but addicted to various kinds of uh, pornography or, or drugs or alcohol or, or whatever. There are all sorts of pastoral problems that every church is dealing with. We made a mess of this world. To use uh, the language of, of Narnia, C.S. Lewis uh, books, we're all sons of Adam and daughters of Eve. We're all children of the second son. We've all made a mess of things, but... The good news is, we, unlike the younger son in the parable, we have a faithful older brother. We have a faithful older brother who came in fulfillment of Ezekiel 34, verse 11, where God says, I, I myself will seek and save the lost. 
What did Jesus say when he was at the house of Zacchaeus in Luke chapter 19? The Son of Man has come to seek and to save the lost. All the lost sons of Adam, all the lost daughters of Eve, which includes everyone here. There is none righteous, no, not one. All have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. As we read from 1 John, if anyone says, I have no sin, he makes God out to be a liar. We've all messed up. Thanks be to God. God has sent the faithful, the faithful older brother, our older brother, Jesus, has come to seek and to save us. Now that brings me to the fourth thing that I wanted to talk about, the cost of return. Tim Keller has a chapter on this in his book. I won't spend that much time on it, but just to ask this question, how much did it cost to bring the younger son back into the family in, the, in Luke 15? How much did it cost? Well, you say it didn't cost anything. Oh, yes, it did. It cost a robe. It cost a gold ring. It cost a pair of sandals or shoes. And uh, it cost a fatted calf. And with the fatted calf, everything that goes for a big banquet, uh, inviting uh, lots of neighbors and friends. <laughs> Putting on a big feast like that is not uh, inexpensive. It's, it, it costs a lot of money. And, and who paid the price for the return of the younger son? Did the younger son pay the price? No. Did the father pay the price? No. Twice it tells us in this parable that everything that he had, he gave to his sons. He divided everything and gave half to the younger son and half to the older son, or maybe he gave a double portion to the older son because that was the custom then. But even at the end, he says, everything that I had is yours. The father authorized the payment, but it came out of the older son's stuff. The older son paid the price for the return of the younger son. Now, he did it reluctantly. He did it against his will. But it points to the reality of the fact that for you and me to come back into the family of God, to be reclaimed and redeemed, our older brother has paid the price. And it wasn't the fatted calf that got killed. It was the lamb, the lamb of God that shed his blood. That was the price that had to be paid. And we didn't pay it. Our older brother paid it when he offered himself willingly as a sacrifice to pay for our sins. What a glorious older brother we have who has done that for us. Now I said the purpose of this parable was to address proud, hard-hearted, unforgiving People who smugly look down their noses at others. How do, you, how do you get them to stop being proud and smug and so self-satisfied and looking down their noses at others? How, how do you bring them down to where they should be? By showing them that in reality, they are also the younger brother. That though they may be respectable in their own eyes, As far as God is concerned, you are a son of Adam, you are a daughter of Eve, and you've messed up just as much as they have. You've inherited their corrupt nature, and you have imitated their corrupt practices. We've all sinned. We are all in need of a faithful older brother to rescue us. So humble your hearts, come down off your high horse, and confess your need 
for a faithful older brother and give thanks that we have one in Jesus Christ who paid the price of our return. Amen. Almighty and gracious Heavenly Father, we thank you that you loved us and sent your son Jesus, your older son, to be our Savior and Lord. We pray, O Father, that we may humble our hearts, confess the fact that, that we're not better than other people, that we're just like everybody else who has broken your commandments and sinned against you and are in need of a Savior. O Lord, humble our proud hearts and enable us to honor you this day by putting our faith in Jesus. We ask in his name. Amen. Let us sing of the glory of our Savior by singing number 382, Majestic Sweetness Sits Enthroned Upon the Savior's Brow. Stand if you're able, and we'll sing all four stanzas of number 382.